Genesis chapter number 25 this morning, and uh, what a blessing it is to be with you here. We all survived so far, amen, and uh, no guarantees, but you know that was true before all this mess started, amen. No man knows what a day may bring forth, and uh, I'm just thrilled to be here with you this morning in the house of the Lord. Genesis chapter number 25, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number 21. We'll read a little bit more scripture than, than what we'll be using this morning, but I want to give us a little bit of context as we preach about Esau and Jacob. Genesis chapter number 25, verse number 21, the word of God says, And Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. The Lord was entreated of him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy vows. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people. And the elder shall serve the younger. That's very important. The elder shall serve the younger. And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red all over like an hairy garment. And they called his name Esau. Esau's name means hairy. And after that came his brother out, and his hand took hold on Esau's heel. And his name was called Jacob. Now we say that Jacob's name means supplanter, and it does, figuratively speaking. Literally, it means heel catcher or heel holder. So both these boys were named for the conditions under which they was born. And Isaac was three score years old when she bare them. The boys grew, and Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field. And Jacob was a plain man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison. But Rebekah loved Jacob. And Jacob sawed pottage, and Esau came from the field, and he was faint. And Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore was his name called Edom. The name Edom means red. In other words, he got a nickname. What he did here defined him forever. Jacob said, Sell me this day thy birthright. And Esau said, Behold, I am at the point to die. And what profit shall this birthright do to me? Jacob said, Swear to me this day. And he swore unto him, and he sold his birthright unto Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils, and he did eat and drink and rose up and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you and thank you for this another day, another opportunity that has been delivered from your hand to our lives to gather together around the bread of your word, and Lord, for it to be broken, for it to satisfy our souls. I pray, Lord, for each and every person here. I don't know their heart's condition, but, Lord, you know that my heart feels and beats for their hearts. And, Lord, I pray that if there's one amongst us that's lost and undone, that today would be the day that they'd cease to depend upon self or religion or ceremony or good works or the promises of another, and that they would, Lord, cast themselves wholly upon you, that they would see in you their Savior and in your work on Calvary a finished work and a fruitful work and a final work for them. Lord, I I pray also for those that are here that are saved by your grace and Lord that are struggling, that feel the pressures of the world's temptations, that feel often day in and day out that pull from their flesh to do wrong and Lord, that's every one of us. I pray that today you'd instruct us in your word, that you'd guide us and Lord, may our faith be challenged. Lord, may our walk be changed and Father, may we be made more into the image of Christ. And we'll be sure to thank you for it. Lord, we love you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Here in Genesis chapter number 25, we have what I believe to be the most defining moment 
in the life of Esau, the older brother of Jacob. You know, the, the Bible is fairly rich with a record of Esau's life. We don't follow him the way that we follow Jacob much because of what happened here in this chapter. But we're not short on details of what happens in his life. Uh, Esau would leave out from the presence of his family. He would take Gentile wives, Hittite wives, that would be a grief of mind unto his mother and his father. And he would go out and sort of uh, make his own way in the world. And uh, he would become a wealthy man. He would, uh, later on in his life, prior to the death of his father Isaac, he would come back to Isaac and he would request for a blessing. We'll say a word about that before we're done today. Then he'd leave out from there and make his own life. We don't really hear much about him. Uh, until uh, the night that Jacob has his name changed from Jacob to Israel. Uh, the context for that is he has found out that Esau's coming down the road to meet him, and he expects that Esau's going to make good on the promise that Esau had made many years earlier when he swore to kill his brother Jacob. Uh, instead of a uh, night of, of murder and treachery, uh, the Bible tells us that whenever Jacob and Esau meet, Esau runs and falls upon Jacob's neck and and they uh, hug and kiss and, and bless one another and go their separate ways. There are a lot of details about the life of Esau is what I'm driving at. However, I think the passage we've read this morning tells us more about who Esau was, more about who he became, more about what he valued and how he viewed life than probably any other passage in the Word of God. As young men, the Bible describes to us the differences between them. Him and his brother Jacob could not have been different men. Verse 27 says that the boys grew and Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field. In other words, he was an outdoorsman. I think this goes beyond merely the idea of enjoying hunting and fishing. I think what it means is that he viewed his his domain in life, his uh, skill set in life, his aptitude in life as the ability to go out and to kill things and to, and to build and uh, to create. He viewed himself as a self-determined individual. We might use the term today, a self-made man. The Bible tells us in verse 27 that Jacob was a plain man dwelling in tents. It's interesting, the same word for plain is used to talk about Job, uh, and it's used as the word perfect. That does not necessarily mean that Jacob was a righteous man, because I don't believe Jacob at this stage in his life was a righteous man. In fact, if I'm being honest, I think that Jacob probably always struggled with that old nature, that old character of being a deceiver and a supplanter. But certainly at this stage in his life, and certainly in the passage we've read, he doesn't look like a very righteous man. What it means is this, he was a simple man. It means that he had no real ambitions outside of that tent that he dwelled in. Uh, he was content just to live his life as it was. And, and the Bible tells us that one day Jacob's inside and he's uh, making pottage. Now, pottage is just a word for uh, a soup. Uh, in other words, he was making a stew. We're told later on that it was a pottage of lentils. There's probably nothing in the world sounds less appetizing to me than lentils. Somebody say amen to that. Sounds like something you dig off of that trap in your, in your dryer. Amen. And probably tastes like that too. Somebody say amen to that. But... For Esau in this moment, the Bible says he comes in from the field. He's had a, a, a unfulfilling, unfruitful hunting excursion. He has no meat. He's not been able to provide for himself. He is at a moment of weakness and insecurity. He is keenly aware that he that day could not feed himself, could not take care of himself. And he comes inside the tent. He smells these lentils cooking. And he looks at his brother Jacob and he says, feed me with this red pottage. Boy, isn't that interesting? Uh, this isn't part of my sermon, but let me just say this. Whenever Esau was born, the Bible says that he was red and hairy all over. 
Later on, the very thing that gets him in trouble is red pottage. So much so that they change his name and give him a nickname. They call him Edom, which means red. You know, it's a reminder to me that we all have certain weaknesses in our life. Certain things that harmonize with our nature uh, that we have a desire for. And it may not tempt anybody else. It may not be something that anybody else would struggle with. But hey, we all need to be mindful of what our weaknesses are. Somebody say amen right there. There are certain things. Let me, I'm going to do that again. You must have been coughing from the coronavirus. I said we all have weaknesses. We all have certain temptations in our life. Things that we have to be cautious of because if we're not careful, they'll sneak up on us and ambush us. We need to be realistic about what our weaknesses are. By the way, I'll say this too. This isn't part of my message, but you ever heard the phrase, you are what you eat? Esau became what he ate. It's a reminder in our lives that the things that we feast upon are ultimately the things that we become. The things that we pour into our life will have an effect on us. Uh, listen, every one of us, we put things in our life, influences, relationships, people, uh, certain uh, entertainment and media, things of that sort. Everything we put in our life has a bearing on who we are and what we become. Amen. Esau, he's hungry. He says, I am faint. And he cried out to Jacob. He says in verse number 30, feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. Then an interesting thing happened. Jacob could have just simply given him the pottage, but every the opportunist, Jacob said in verse 31, sell me this day thy birthright. Esau said, behold, I am at the point to die. And what profit shall this birthright do to me? That statement reveals more about the mind and heart and character of Esau than you could possibly imagine. Jacob said, swear to me this day, and he swore unto him, and he sold his birthright unto Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils, and he did eat and drink and rose up and went his way. Now, let's pause for a minute. You and I, if we're not careful, we'll see this nothing as more than a friendly transaction between two brothers. We'll look at it and we'll say, well, it was Esau's right to give this away if he wanted to. It was his right to sell it. It was Jacob's right to buy it. But something more is transpiring in this passage. And we know that by the last phrase in verse 34. It says, he went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. I want to preach to you this morning on this thought. Selling your birthright for beans. You know, every one of us as believers, we have a birthright. And I'm going to say a word here in a moment about what this birthright meant for them. But a birthright was something that was bestowed upon, invested in the firstborn. It was a product of them having been born, having been given life, existing, having a connection and a relationship to their father and to their family. Listen carefully, your spiritual birthright, of which every one of us is born again by the grace of God, we partake in a spiritual birthright. If we're not careful in this world we're living in, we'll sell it for beans. Somebody will come along, the devil will come along, the world will come along, uh, some agent of evil will come along and offer us at our moment of weakness, at our moment of insecurity, at our moment of failure, at our moment of feeling as though we are helpless, will sell us beans or will offer to us lentils or whatever it is that you crave. Isn't it interesting? It's like Jacob knew what to be fixing that day. I think probably, hey, listen, I think probably if it had been a Big Mac, Esau might have passed on it. I think maybe if it had been a Pop-Tart, he might have walked on by. But it was that red, red orange. It was something that he identified with. It was something that he craved. And let me tell you something, the devil knows exactly what tempts you and what tempts me. Don't think the devil's going to come at you with something that doesn't interest you. He's far wiser than that. He'll come at you with that very thing that you're craving in that moment. 
So what was it that took place here? Well, I have three thoughts I want to share with you this morning that might do a little bit to explain the passage. First, I want to say a word about what was in the birthright. We don't talk about a birthright most of the time today. It's not a common uh, feature of our culture. And so I'm going to say a word about what was in the birthright. And then I want to say a word this morning about what was in the bowl. Because there was more than lentils in the bowl. And let me tell you something. Whatever the devil sells you, there's always more to it than he wants to tell you. And then finally, before we're done, I want to say a word about what was in the bargain. How did this wind up for Esau? Well, first off this morning, let's think about what was in this birthright. Uh, A birthright was essentially special privileges that was bestowed upon the firstborn in a family. And it involved a few things. It included, number one, prosperity. The firstborn would be given a double portion of the inheritance. In other words, if, if you had 12 boys, the inheritance would not be split 12 ways equally, quote unquote. It'd be split 13 ways equally. And two of those portions would go to the firstborn. This is, by the way, what happened with, with Joseph uh, and, and with Jacob. Uh, the, uh, whenever Reuben was disinherited, uh, the uh, double portion that belonged to Reuben was instead given to Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. That's why you have the blessing in the book of Genesis when Jacob's about to die. Joseph brings his boys uh, to his daddy and asks him to bless them. And and, uh, Jacob reaches out and the Holy Ghost crosses his hands up because Joseph was trying to control things. Don't we as parents, we always want to control things. Amen? And and so Joseph was trying to pick winners and choosers. And so he he set them a certain way and the Holy Ghost said, no, Jacob, cross your hands, bless them the other way because the Lord always knows what's best even when we don't know what's best. But the reason that whole scene unfolds is because Reuben had been disinherited and there was a double portion that should have gone to Reuben or would have, would be maybe a better word, gone to Reuben, but instead went to Joseph's sons Ephraim and Manasseh. So it was customary that the firstborn would get more than what uh, the younger would. By the way, it's a good perspective to have when you read Luke chapter 15. What was it that older brother had to complain about? He is sitting at home with a double portion. Amen. By the way, if he had had a little grace, you know what he could have done? He could have took that second portion and given it to his younger brother that had wasted and squandered uh, his father's living in the far country. You know, it might help us to treat people with a little grace whenever they mess up. Because sooner or later, we're apt to mess up. Amen. And I found this most of the time when people do me wrong. Listen, I don't know where this comes from, but I'm going to say it. Most of the time when people do me wrong, they can't do me more wrong than Jesus has done me right. Amen. It don't matter how much they squandered in the far country, I'm still sitting at home with a double portion far more than I ever deserved. Maybe if we get our eyes off those that done us wrong, get our eyes instead on who has done us right, we'd be a lot more satisfied. Maybe then we could rejoice when the padded cap is killed. Amen. So uh, an older son, a firstborn, they would get a double portion. They get prosperity. Number two, it included prominence. Uh, this is part of what got Joseph in trouble later with his twelve brethren. He he gets a vision from the Lord that says that all of his brethren are going to bow down before him. And he, like a kid does, he tells everybody. <laughs> he says, hey, I just got this vision from God, and guess what? I'm going to be all your all's bosses. Amen? That wouldn't have flown in my house either. Somebody say amen there. And uh, his brothers despised him. And part of the reason for that is because anybody would resent it. But part of the reason they felt uh, ground and authority to resent him is because there was a foundation, a principle that the younger would serve the elder. Now, God had already said about Jacob and Esau that the elder would serve the younger. Uh, but it was normal for a place of prominence to be given uh, to a firstborn. They were Lord over their brethren. Number three, it included the priesthood. 
Now, this is prior to Sinai, prior to the law being given. Uh, the uh, priesthood was vested in the sons of Aaron whenever God gave the law. But prior to that, the oldest male in the family would serve as the priest for the rest. That's the reason Job gave sacrifices for his sons. That's the reason that Abraham built altars and gave sacrifices. The oldest would always be, the firstborn would always be the high priest over the family prior to Sinai. So it meant the priesthood. That was normal for everyone that was of Hebrew faith at that time in the world. But now there's a third one, or excuse me, a fourth one that we must mention. It also involved, now this is going to be a big word, but I'm going to define it. You ready? It included progenitorship. He said, what does that mean, preacher? Well, a progenitor is an ancestor. But you remember back in the Garden of Eden when man sinned, in Genesis 3.15, God promised that there would be a promised seed of the woman that would come and would defeat the serpent and would crush his head and would bring salvation to mankind. Well, that seed had to pass down through some family line. And it passed down. The promise was given of a, of a Messiah, of a promised son was given to Abraham. And Abraham had Isaac and Isaac was chosen and not Ishmael because Isaac was the product of faith and and Ishmael the product of flesh. Well, now here we have two boys that have come of the same mother. Which one is going to be the one through whom the Messiah is going to come? Well, to this family, it was going to be the firstborn, typically speaking. Now, there's a pattern in the Word of God. God usually rejects the first and chooses the second. I'm I'm a second brother. Somebody say amen right there. (laughs) Not that has anything to do with it. But God, there, there was a first son, but God chose the second son. Uh, there, and you can go through the Bible and you'll see this. There was a first man, Adam, but it's the second Adam through which salvation comes. You can go through there always uh, in the Word of God. There, there was a first wife, Rachel, but it was the second wife, Leah, that was blessed. God would choose seconds. Aren't you thankful He chooses yeah. seconds? Sometimes I feel like the leftovers, but I'm glad God uses leftovers. Amen? And so there was a pattern here, and it's included here in this passage. But the firstborn, traditionally, uh, in the seed of the Messiah, or in the ancestry of the Messiah, would be the one that would carry this promised seed. Now, you're going to say, well, preacher, that's good and everything. I appreciate the history lesson. What does it mean to me? Well, you know, if I get to think about it, it kind of reminds me of some of the things we have in Jesus Christ. Can I share a few verses for you? I think about that prosperity. The birthright included prosperity. A double portion, not just a regular portion, a double portion. And I'm reminded that the Bible tells us that we're given all riches in Christ Jesus. That we're made inheritors of a spiritual blessing and inheritors of spiritual riches. I didn't say physical riches. Crippled dollars say that. A spiritual the Bible says this inheritance is incorruptible, it's undefiled, and faith not away. But let me say this, inasmuch as we choose to walk with God, that we choose to embrace our identity of children of God and walk as children of God before Him, there is always a, a reward associated with that. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Now if any man build upon this foundation, meaning the foundation of our salvation in Christ, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work, shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. You say, preacher, what's he talking about? He's talking about the judgment seat of Christ. One of these days, God's going to separate what we've done, what we've done for Him, what we've done in the, in the Spirit, what we've done in the flesh, and, and some of it's going to burn up, and some of it's going to remain. But listen to what he says, if any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon. In other words, the life that he's lived. 
If he's lived a life for Christ, if he's served the Lord, if he's given his heart to the Lord, if he's walked with God, that work will abide. And then he says this, he shall receive a reward. So what do you mean, preacher? I'm saying this, for those of us that will choose to embrace that birthright, there is a prosperity or there is a reward, spiritually speaking, associated with it. And then I think about the promise. Lord over his brethren. How many of you know this, that we have victory in Christ Jesus? Aren't you thankful that those of us saved by the grace of God, those of us that have received the Lord Jesus Christ, we're not victims, we're we're, we're victors. Amen? Uh, Well, listen, we're not the conquered, we're more than conquerors through Him that loved them. And I say this, inasmuch as we embrace that birthright, there's also a prominence associated with walking with God. What do you mean? Well, listen to what Christ said in Mark chapter number 10, verse 29. Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the Gospels. But he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. Listen to what he says. But many that are first shall be last and the last first. What are you getting at, preacher? I'm saying this, that the best way to get ahead in life is to embrace that birthright and walk with God. Amen. Walk as a child of God. Be willing to walk in humility to put Christ first, the things of God first, put ourselves last, and they that are last shall be first. Then I think about that priesthood. We don't live in a time of a human uh, intercessory priesthood of individuals. If anybody tells you you have to tell the priest uh, what your sins are to be forgiven, they're lying to you. Uh, Thankfully, the veil's been rent. Somebody say amen to that. And that means we can go to God, not on our own behalf, but in our own person. So what's the distinction? Well, we go in the behalf of Jesus Christ. We have boldness through Him. We don't deserve to be in the throne room, Amen. but by His grace we can be in the throne room. But we go in our own person. We don't have to ask somebody else to go in there for us. We get to go in there and spend time with God. Peter said it this way in First Peter chapter 2, verse number 5. He said, ye also as lively stones. He's talking about the church and believers. Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. I don't need somebody, uh, I need people praying for me, but I don't need somebody to pray on my behalf. I can pray to God. I don't need somebody else to serve God for me. I can serve God. I don't need somebody else to spend time with God on my behalf. I can spend time with God. We are a royal priesthood, a holy priesthood. He says in verse number 9, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of Him who hath called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. So, walking with God involves enjoying communion with Him, fellowship with Him, partaking in and participating in that priestly relationship. And then there's a fourth one, that progenitorship, that that relationship to Jesus Christ. Being in the family. The idea that the Messiah was part of your family. That He was coming from your lineage. Now, we don't look forward towards Calvary. We look backwards. We're after the cross. But that relationship is there nonetheless. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter number 8. Well, I, let, let, me, let me go even a step further back. Remember what Christ said in, in John chapter number 1 of what John reported in John chapter number 1. He came unto His own. Talking about Jesus. He came unto His own. And His own received Him not. In other words, the Jews as a nation rejected him. But to as many as received him, to them gave him power to become the sons of God, even to them which believe on his name. In other words, when a person gets saved, they get born again, John chapter number 3 language, born again into the family of God. 
And they now are our family members with God the Father. If He is our Father, Jesus must be our sibling. And there is a deep relationship between us and Christ and the Father and the Spirit. We are part of the family of God. But now listen to this language. In Romans chapter 8, what Paul says, verse 14. He says, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Now wait a minute. I, I, I thought the Bible just said to as many as received Him, but then gave Him power to become the sons of God. Why does Paul now say as many as are led by the Spirit of God? I'll tell you right now, I've known lots of Christians in my life that weren't led by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God tried to lead them, but they wouldn't let the Spirit of God lead them. So let's go on a little further, see if we can unriddle it. He says, for ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. So it seems like what Paul's saying here, if I'm not mistaken, I don't believe I am, it seems like what Paul's saying is, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the Spirit of bondage again to fear. In other words, a child would not fear their father, not in a terror, a terrifying way. They might have a reverence for their father, but they shouldn't fear their father in a, in a terror-stricken way. That's not how a son would, would behave. That's not how a daughter would behave. He says, but ye have received the Spirit of adoption, whereby we, we cry, Abba, Father. That term Abba is a term of endearment. Uh, that term Abba is a term of, of, of familiarity in a family relationship. And here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, God saved us and He made us His child, so we ought to act like it. We shouldn't be living in, in a spirit of fear. We shouldn't be living in a spirit of bondage because that's not how a child would act concerning their father. We should cry out, Abba, Papa, Father, Daddy. We should cry out in familiarity unto God. We should approach unto His throne room of grace. And we should be led by His Spirit because we are His children. I'd say it this way. We never look more like Jesus than we do when we're walking in the Spirit of God. Amen. A lot of people are children of God, but they're not living like sons of God. Amen. But as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. We look like Jesus when we're walking in the Spirit. That's part of our spiritual birthright. Is that relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank the Lord that, listen, there's nothing that can change my sonship to God. Nothing that can cause me to be unborn again. There's nothing that can sever. Nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. I'm saved. I'm saved. I'm saved. I'm saved. I'll be saved ten million years from now. I'm thankful my salvation is not dependent upon how I behave. However, my fellowship the preacher mentioned this earlier uh, this week. I wasn't that good revival this week. Praise the Lord for what he did in our, in our midst. But he mentioned this. You know, uh, the, nothing will change the fact that I am my father's son. But, but if I refuse to walk in fellowship with him, the relationship or the nature of the fellowship and communion, that can So in other words, we have a spiritual birthright. And this is the birthright. If we're willing to act like sons of God, if we're willing to walk with God, there's, there's a prosperity associated with it. God will bless us and reward us. Uh, there is a, a prominence associated with it. We'll be first instead of being last because we'll put ourselves last. In other words, if we'll walk with God, He'll put us Lord over our brethren. He'll, he'll promote us. He'll, he'll give us power in our lives. There is a priesthood associated. Uh, we can fellowship with God and commune with Him. and We can go into the presence of God and enjoy uh, his uh, his fellowship, and there is a progenitorship involved. If we walk like sons of God, then we look like Jesus and we're associated with Him. Think about Esau. 
Esau had all these things. Esau had a distinct, deep connection. He had the opportunity to be a part of the line of the Messiah. It could have been the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau, but it wasn't. It was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. See, when he rejected this birthright, he wasn't just rejecting a little money. He wasn't just rejecting being over his brethren. He wasn't just even rejecting the responsibilities being preached over the family. He was rejecting that relationship with the Messiah. And he was evidencing his lack of faith in the promise of the coming seed. He was turning his back on the faith of his father. He was effectively saying, I I count it as nothing. I count it as meaningless. I count it as less than meaningless. And I'm not interested in it. And so he sells his birthright. What did he sell it for? Now think about this as it relates to you and me. We have this walk with God. We have this testimony that we're trying to guard. We have this relationship with the Lord that we're trying to nurture and nourish. What is our price? It's been interesting to watch, and I'm not going to say a lot about it because it just ain't worth my time, but it's been interesting to watch the response of different places this coronavirus thing. They, they In Louisiana, <clears throat> the governors made a ban of, of, a, of, of gathering to 250 people or more. And... Um, they asked him, they said, does that mean churches too? And he said, yes, it means churches. He said, in fact, we were deliberate in the inclusion of churches in this band. And I sat back and thought, boy, sometimes it's good not pastor 250 people. Amen. <laughs> hey, let's start a little church, just keep on having church. Amen. But the truth is, we keep on having church anyway. Amen. And I'll just simply say this, churches will have to make some decisions very possibly very soon about where they stand on some things. Right. And how ready they are willing to sell. Amen. Your walk and my walk with God. What is our price? Well, for Esau, it was a bowl of lentils. But it was more than a bowl of lentils. It was representative of some things. Let me say a word about what was in this bowl. Now, obviously, the text uh, details to us that there were lentils in the bowl. Lentils are a little round legume, and uh, they tended to be a, a cheaper uh, you know, food and, and a, they were a staple of Middle Eastern diet. Uh, it suggested that the color of the lentils, that red lentils would, would lend to this, uh, pottage its red color. But those lentils are representative of more. Can I, can I read a quote to you? And I found this arresting. Listen to what Joseph Parker said about this passage. He, he opened a sermon this way. He said, you pity Esau. You think that he was driven by necessity to make this poor bargain. You say that if he had been less hungry and weary, he would have stood for higher figures. That's the common mistake of men. There's only one price that can be had for a birthright, and that is one morsel of meat. There are no higher figures. There are no better bargains. If he had received 10,000 worlds, they would have constituted but one morsel of meat, when in the other hand, there was a birthright. What he's saying is this, it don't matter what had been in that bowl, it wouldn't have been worth it. It doesn't matter what the world offers you. It's not worth your birthday. So there were lentils in this bowl. Now I thought that was interesting. That's revealed to us in verse 34. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils. It's interesting for two reasons. Because there are two things we know about lentils. One, lentils were a meager food. In other words, it was a cheap way they would fix lentils when they didn't have anything else. If they had money, they uh, might add some meat to it. If, if Esau had brought in uh, venison from the field, he might have eaten, but he didn't have any of that. So what he, in his desperation, sells his birthright for is in fact a cheap, meager food. 
you know, it reminds me of this. There's nothing the world or the devil offers us that is of any value. I said it this past week, and I wasn't trying to pump forgiven, but this past week I made the statement on several occasions, there's nothing in our wallets, there's nothing in our churches worth more than the work God has done in our church this past week. Can I say something to you? There's nothing the world could give you that's worth more than what Christ has already given. There's nothing this if you live without fellowship with the Lord, you'll agree. There's nothing this world can give you that would be worth your fellowship with Him, worth your testimony, worth your walk with Him. Often in our glutton state, often as we've been filled, you know, we're we're, we're fat Christians. Amen. Now, hold on before you get mad at me. Some of us are fat Christians, but but hold on before you get. I mean, we're spiritually fat. Listen, with most of us, we got 50 Bibles in our house. We got the opportunity to hear preaching all the time that we want to. Uh, we, we can go on the internet. We can hear good preaching. We can hear good singing. Uh, we can go to half a dozen churches in this area and hear a good message and maybe get in a spirit and atmosphere of good work. We're fat Christians. We've got all we could ever need, and it's unthinkable to us to live in a time of famine of spiritual things. Let me tell you something. You get out and you get messed up and you get in the ditch. For a few months, you'll realize how precious you are. There's nothing that we've got, or there's nothing the world can get that is worth what Christ has given us. It was meager food. But then I would say this, it was also a mourner's food. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, it was common to fix lentils uh, for someone if they were mourning. Probably because it tasted so terrible. Somebody say amen to that. But it, it was said in Jewish lore that the lentil represented death, round and and spherical in shape, ever rolling, never ceasing, never ending. And even to this day, Jews very often, as a part of mourning, will eat lentils as a part of their custom. It was uh, suggested uh, by history, the Bible doesn't say this, but that it was on the occasion of Abraham's death that Jacob was making this pottage, that he was making it to comfort his father Isaac, as Isaac had lost his father Abraham. And so to this day, lentils are considered a mourner's food. It is a food of death, as most vegetables are. (laughs) Can I remind you something? Anything the world gives you, anything... That the world gives any anything you sell your birthright for will ultimately end in nothing but death. Remember what Galatians chapter six says, verse number uh, seven: Be not deceived; God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. And then, lest we wonder what he's talking about, he says, "For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption." James one fifteen says, "Lust, when it hath conceived, bringeth forth sin; and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death." Hey, Paul said that uh, those that live in pleasure, they're dead while they live. I'm not saying God doesn't want you to enjoy life. God doesn't mind you enjoying life. But anything that asks you to sell your birthright is ultimately only going to bring you heartache and misery and sorrow. Any trade you, man, I've seen it a thousand. I can't tell you the numbers of people I've seen walk out on God and walk out on church for a better job or a better prospect or a better house or whatever it is, and it be shipwrecked for their life. Hey, listen, they got what they wanted. But they lost what they had. They got out. They got messed up. They got away from the Lord. And it destroyed their lives. At the end of the day, it was mourner's food. So there were lentils in the bowl. Let me say number two. Look at verse 32 with me. Esau makes a statement. He says, Behold, I am at the point to die. And what profit shall this birthright do to me? Well, that's an interesting statement. For two reasons. One, it's a lie. It's a lie. Now, what do you mean, preacher? Well, I would say this, there were lentils in the bowl. But then I would notice there were lies in the bowl. Amen. 
Because anytime we sell our birthright for beans, we always have to lie to ourselves to talk ourselves into doing What were the lies that Esau told? Well, notice number one, he despaired of his condition. He says, I am at the point to die. We have a word for this in modern culture. You know what it is? It's the word hangry. Your wife ever get hangry? You ever, some of the worst fights I've had in my marriage have been on the way trying to decide what to keep. It's amazing to me. I, they've, not, they've not put a new restaurant in our area in years, although we're getting fixing it at Popeye's. Love that chicken from Popeye's. <laughs> Get rid of it at Popeye's, but it's amazing to me. We can be headed home. I'll look at my wife and say, What do you want to do? She said, I don't know. I'll say, Well, you know what's there. What do you want? She said, I don't know. What do you want? I'll say, Let's get this because I don't want that. <laughs> soon it devolves into warfare. <laughs> we start to get angry. We start to exaggerate our condition. Call this up to I'm going to die. That's what Esau said. I'm at the point of death. Can I ask you something? A man fixing to die probably couldn't have dragged himself out of the field. No way. A man fixing to die probably couldn't have held on a conversation. A man fixing to die probably couldn't have reasoned within himself the way that Esau reasoned within himself. Here's what he did. He told himself his need was more desperate than it truly was. You know, I found in my life when I'm getting ready to do something wrong, I have to spend a lot of energy convincing myself that there's no other way. I have to tell myself, man, I need this. I've got to have this. There's no other way. I've got to work myself up into a lather in order to convince myself and to slap myself up because it's the heart of hearts. I know it's not something that's right. So he despaired of his condition. Number two, let me say this, he despised his position. He said, what good, what profit shall this birthright do to me? Tells me how he viewed that birthright. You know what he thought about the birthright? He thought, well, it means prosperity, but if I'm getting ready to die, it ain't going to do me no good. He thought, well, it means prominence, Lord over your brethren, but if I'm getting ready to die, that won't do me no good. He thought to himself, it means the priesthood. If I'm getting ready to die, I, I don't need to be the high priest. That doesn't do me no good. And it tells me that fourth thing, you know why? Because even if he died, there's no value in being in the line of the Messiah. His children would have been part of the Messiah's line. His descendants would have been part of the Messiah's line. And forever his testimony would have been closely associated with that of the coming Messiah over Israel. The fact that he says that tells me this. He didn't value what he had. You know, I, I, and I'm just talking about me. I'm not even talking about you, alright? But, but I'm talking about me. I found this, that whenever I'm getting ready to do something wrong, there's two things I have to do. One, I have to convince myself that there's no other way. And two, I have to ignore what I'm giving up in order to do. Listen, when I sin, when I get messed up, when I do wrong, and guess what? I sin sometimes, I mess up, I do wrong. And when I do, I have to ignore that it's going to disrupt my fellowship with the Lord. I have to ignore what I know is going to be the result of it is all of a sudden like a, like a fountain has been turned off, like a light has been shut down. The blessing of God seems to cease from my life. The peace that I enjoy is no longer there and life seems to be a perpetual banging of my head against the wall until the Holy Ghost gets it through my thick skull that I've got to get right and do right and I somehow ignore all that so that I can manage to do what it is that I'm tempted to do. We despise our I found this, it's hard to sin with Calvary on our mind. 
It's hard to sin with the Holy Ghost on our heart. It's hard to sin with our responsibilities to the Lord present on our mind. So there were lies in the bowl. But then let me say this. I, I noticed there were losses in the bowl. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, Esau wound up worse than he started. And any time you give in to the devil, any time you sell your birthright, for you always come out the loser. It reminds me of what the book of Haggai says about disobeying the Lord. The Lord of hosts said, Consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag of withholds. If that don't sound like being out of the will of God, I don't know what does. Seems like the, when you get out of the will of God, the, it's like being stuck in the snow or stuck in the mud. The, the, the more gas you lay down, the, 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 the deeper you dig, the more, the more throttle you put into it, the more of a mess you wind up in. And nothing's going to be right until you get right. It's going to be perpetual losses. Try as you may, guess what? God will track you down. God will, one way or another, get your attention. You might as well go ahead and give in now before you make great losses. So I see what was in the bowl. And then finally, and I'm done this morning, I want to say a word about what was in the bark. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. I want to read about three verses in Hebrews chapter 12 and just say a few words about this and then we'll close. Hebrews chapter number 12 is the last mention of Esau in the Bible. In fact, it's the last mention of several things. It's the last mention of Esau. It's the last mention of the word birthright. It's the last mention of the word profane. Uh, There's a lot of things that are found for the last time in Hebrews chapter 12. But the Hebrews writer reminds us of the peril of Esau's decision. And he, in vivid graphic terms, details for us exactly what transpired that day when he sold his birthright. Verse 15, the Hebrews writer says, Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat, sold his birthright. That means for one meal. That's all it was, just one meal. For ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. What a sad, pitiful scene is laid out before us. You know what it tells us? It tells us what the terms of the bargain really are. You ever sign something without reading it, only to read it later and find out what a mess you got yourself into? we got to sign everything now. It's going to be amazing. One of these days, they won't even have to catch us doing anything wrong and put us in jail. We'll all go to jail for violating the terms of our service. Amen? We don't know what we've agreed to every time we click on a website or go here or there or sign up. We're just accepting terms and service. Google might own your firstborn. You don't know. We don't ever read that stuff. Who's got time for that? We just, I agree and move on. Well, that's sort of what Esau did. He said, I agree. And move it on. But here in Hebrews 12, we're told what really was involved. There's a few things. Notice with me, first off, that there was a heinous crime involved. Esau didn't think much about it. He thought it's my birthright to sell. This is just a free trade transaction. Capitalism is fine. It's no big deal. I'll I'll sell my birthright and and, and Jacob will make a little something. I'll, I'll get some lentils and everybody will walk away happy. Here's the problem. Not everybody did walk away happy. Jacob might have been pleased. Esau might have been pleased. But the Lord was very displeased with what Esau had done. The Bible describes Esau in two ways. And there's probably commentators that would argue with me. They're all dead. You can't argue with a book, so I get my say now. There's probably 
Two things, though, here that are described. Number one, the Bible says that Esau was a fornicator. Now, fornication means to involve yourself in, in physical activity or relationship, uh, immoral activity outside of the bounds of marriage. Adultery is when you commit those acts with someone uh, that is married or you yourself are married or they are married, but fornication is to commit those acts when you're unmarried. Never in the Bible does it tell us that Esau committed fornication. So why here does it call him a fornicator? You know, in the Old Testament, God was, would often speak of rebellious Israel as whoremongers and adulterers. And a nation cannot, I mean, I guess collectively they could choose to, but a nation as an idea cannot commit adultery, cannot be a whoremonger. God was using that language figuratively, talking about their idolatry. And I think the same thing happens here. You see, Esau, we have no record of him being a fornicator, but what he did in selling his birthright, it's sort of similar to fornication. I wrote this down. In adultery, you're taking something that isn't yours to take. It belongs to someone else. But in fornication, you're giving something that isn't yours to give. You ever think about what the Hebrews writer says in Hebrews 13.4? Marriage is honorable in all. It doesn't say marriage should be honorable in all. It says marriage is honorable in all. And it says the bed undefiled. It doesn't say the bed should be undefiled. It says the bed is undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. Remember that marriage is a holy institution, a biblical institution. It's a spiritual institution. It's not a secular institution. It's not a fiscal institution. It's a spiritual institution. And what God is saying is this, that, that marriage as defined by God is an honorable thing. That the marriage bed as defined by God is undefiled. And that to deviate from that is to deviate into something that is no longer rightly called the marriage bed. In other words, the only way a person can give that part of them to someone else they first stood at an altar and made a pledge and a commitment before God and they give themselves to God and God gives them that person to the other. Amen. See, when he sold his birthright, he was doing something similar. He was taking something that wasn't his to give. It belonged to God. It was God's birthright. God had instituted that, that statute. It was God's birthright. But he took something that was not his to give and gave to another. You know what? When you sell your birthright, listen, what? Know ye not that you are uh, not your own? You're bought with a price. Your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. Glorify God in your spirit and in your body. Guess what? When you got born again, you don't belong to you anymore. That birthright don't belong to you. That testimony don't belong to you. That's God's. And when we sell it, we're selling something that is not ours to give. And then he calls him profane. Profane. Now the word profane doesn't mean perverted, although it would include that, but it means something that is that that is is uh, that despises spiritual holy things. It's a scorner. It's a scoffer. In other words, uh, Esau not only did he take something that was not his to to give and give it away, but he also uh, disobeyed the Lord and profaned the precept of God when he did it. In other words, we see first the violation of his sin. He was a fornicator. Then we see the victim of his sin. He was profaned. He transgressed against God. Listen, at the end of the day, when we sell our birthright, in other words, when we quit living like a Christian, walking like a Christian, keeping our testimony, the first person, we, we may sin against our kids, we may sin against our spouse, we may sin against our church, but the first person that is transgressed against is the God of death. That's what David said in Psalms 51. Uh, he had he had committed adultery with a married woman. Uh, he had murdered her husband. Uh, he had involved someone else, uh, other people in the murder. But he says against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, talking to the Lord. 
Not say he hadn't done those other people wrong, but it was say that before he ever did them wrong, he sinned in his heart and did God wrong. So there's a heinous crime. Then I would say this, there's a hidden cause. Notice what it says carefully in Hebrews chapter number 12. It says this, For ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, so he sought it carefully with tears. So there it doesn't say the the birthright, it says the blessing. He sold his birthright. And later on, he was rejected for the blessing. The blessing would have been a spiritual gift bestowed, a prophetic pronouncement bestowed uh, upon the firstborn son. In other words, when the daddy was dying, they come to him and the father was blessed. Well, listen to the blessing that he would have received. This blessing instead went to Jacob. The blessing says, Therefore God give thee of the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of corn and wine. In other words, meaning being prosperous. Let people serve thee and nations bow down to thee. Be Lord over thy brethren and let thy mother's sons bow down to thee. Cursed be everyone that curseth thee and blessed be he that blesseth thee. That blessing would have gone to Esau. And you know why it couldn't go to Esau? Because it involved the Messiah. It said, nations shall bow down to thee. In other words, it was looking forward to the promise of the coming Messiah. Because he sold his birthright, he missed the blessing. Can I tell you something? There's always a hidden cost to selling our birthright. There's always fine print. It will always cost us more than we think it will. Always. So there was a hidden cost. Notice there was a helpless condition. I got real loud. I don't know what just happened there, but I'm real loud now. Time to wake up. The Bible says in verse number 17, He was rejected for He found no place of repentance, though He sought it carefully with tears. In other words, there are some things you can't turn back from. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, when he says it's about no place to repent, I don't think it's saying he couldn't repent. He could repent just as you can repent, just as I can repent. I don't think it's saying God wants to forgive him. Here's what I think it's saying. Later on in Genesis 27, he goes to Isaac and he begs Isaac to bless him. Jacob has already received the blessing, but he comes to Isaac and he says, Bless me, Father. Pass out the one blessing for me. And he weeps and he cries. In other words, he could get God's forgiveness. He could get his brother's forgiveness. He could try to get his life right. But at the end of the day, he was never going to get that blessing. Can I tell you something? There are some mistakes that we make. God will forgive us for, but we can never undo them. There are certain things that we can lose in life. I'm talking about our testimony. I'm talking about our, our, our influence in people's lives. I'm talking about our, our, our record. I'm talking about our past. There are some things that we just can't get back. There's times that we sow the wind and we reap the whirlwind. And then finally, and I'm going to say a word about this. I'm not even going to go to the passage. You can read it in Obadiah if you want. But I would say this. There's a heartbreaking continuation. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, remember how the Hebrew writer started this back in verse number 16. He says, looking diligently, lest any man fail, of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up trouble in you, and thereby many be defiled. It's interesting when you look at the history of Esau's life, because you would expect Esau to never get over this. But in fact, Esau does. When we see him there at the at, at the court of Jacob when he meets his brother, he sees the forgiveness there, but he sees the God's forgiveness. But you know that though Esau forgave Jacob, Esau's descendants. Later on, the book of Obadiah, he cries mainly with 
six. When that number is locked, you look on the eyes, report the graphically how that the Edomites chased down those fleeing Israelites and captured them and took them back to the Babylonians that the Babylonians had taken captive. They killed some of them. In other words, they participated in the destruction of May get messed up and you may get things right. I don't mean you're about to. I don't mean you're raised. I don't mean you're raised. I don't mean you're neighbors. I don't mean you're family. I'm saying this sadly because of Esau's mistake on this day, because of sin on this day, a whole people, a whole nation wound up messed up, alienated from the grace of God, wound up destroyed in judgment. Yeah. 